connected with the investigation that I have talked about this morning are a few others which are all designed to purify our views and purify our doubts, our opinions, and bring us to a state of seeing directly without the accretions that we have around that seeing. What we usually do, and I don't necessarily mean seeing with our physical eyes, it's the inner seeing that is meant. And what we usually do is we see with opinion. And most of those opinions are based on memories, experiences, personal likes, and a whole gamut of a personal <coughs> reaction to what we're experiencing. And because of that, we're never experiencing directly. If we ever do, and it can happen accidentally, then we feel quite elated. It's a totally different experience. And we recognize, if we have had any training, that that has been mindfulness. We were actually there and nowhere else and had a direct experience rather than one that had an explanation around it. Now, we're not aware of those explanations, but when we meditate, we do become aware of the fact that our mind is a chatterbox and it's very hard to turn it off. It seems to have um, perpetuum mobile in it. It just keeps going. And that is exactly what happens when we are experiencing. And that's why it's not direct, because the chatterbox of the mind gets in and tells us all about that experience. As long as we do that, and it's only meditation that will stop us from doing that. And it's only the mindfulness practice that will help us in that. We won't be able to see anything other than what we've seen already. And that what we've seen already in this lifetime has neither been totally satisfactory, nor has it been very elevating our consciousness. On the contrary, it's been very often the opposite. So it's urgent that we see differently. And this direct seeing then gives us a view which cuts through all the opinions and viewpoints we have gives us an, a view as if we were standing on a balcony and are looking down 
or even have done a bit of mountain climbing and are looking down upon the scenery. We're not so much in it, we can see it. All of that is dependent upon our ability to be one-pointed. Now, of course, we are training our mind to do that in the meditation. And as we do that in meditation with the breath or the meditation subject we have chosen, the mind becomes more and more used to that. And as it becomes more and more used to it, it will continue to do so even at other times when it's not asked to meditate. And at that time, the an automatic inquiry into the three characteristics of existence very often arises spontaneously. If it doesn't, it has to be made to arise. If we want to understand the three characteristics of existence. Now, the three characteristics of existence, the T lakanas, T means three, and lakanas characteristics, are in Pali, anicca dukkha, natta, I've mentioned them before, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta is often translated literally as non-self. Atta is self. An is non. So in this tradition, this is very often translated as non-self. And there we get then the scholarly discussions whether that is actually the same as non-substantiality and corelessness. Of course it is. It's just a literal translation. Anatta means, in English, non-self. But it means, in the personal experience, that there isn't a core there isn't something that is unchangeable. There isn't something that has the quality of solidity. There isn't something that remains. And that applies to not just this person or other persons. It applies to all that exists. Now, when we want to find out absolute truth. We want to really be connected to a truth which is universal, always true for everybody, always has been, is now and will be. And no matter who it is that tries to investigate it, if they have the ability to come to the end of it, they must find the same. If we want to do that, then this is the direction where we're going. This investigation starts with us, but it then leads us to look at others and all things that exist in the same way and examine again and again whether it holds true for us and for others or for trees and for flowers, or for earth, or for mountains 
or for stars or moon, clouds, whatever it is we happen to look at or to think of. Is it true universally? Now, we could very easily say, yeah, sure, it's true. Buddha said, so it's okay. And mind you, this is often done, even though it's absurd. But then we certainly do not have any liberation from absurdity. So this is done, but of course it's not profitable, nor is there any value to it. It's also not valuable to doubt it. That too doesn't bring any results. The only thing that's valuable is an investigation. That is the third factor of enlightenment. When that investigation has become complete, it is a factor of enlightenment. Until then, it's a training. Now, the things I have already described, such as the five aggregates or the parts of the body or the impermanence of this body or the breath or the impermanence of thoughts or feelings. All of these lead us into an understanding, a personal realization of the fact that because of this constant movement which exists, it is impossible to have a core substance, even though we are so convinced that there must be one there. But this investigation shows us something else. Sometimes it doesn't. And the only reason why it doesn't show us anything else is because we don't want to see it. It's not within the realm of our preconceived notions, and it doesn't really answer what we think are our needs. If we don't see it, the only reason for not seeing is we don't want to. Otherwise, it's so obvious. And this is the interesting part of the Dhamma, of the teaching of the Buddha. It's proclaimed by us, ourselves, constantly. And if we were to be paying good attention with direct experiencing, without the mental accretion, we would know it right from the word go. We'd never have to hear any other teaching than just knowing what's going on. We don't. So we have to make an effort. And the effort means that we become more and more attentive attentive to that what's really happening rather than to that what we think is happening. It's a great difference. What we think is happening is usually incorrect. But what is happening can't be incorrect, it's happening. This applies to all our physical action, they're happening also applies to the mind that directs the physical action, that applies to the sense contact, 
the feeling, the perception, and the reaction, the mental formation. All that's really happening. If we were not to put in there that, of course, I've got to get angry because this person is so awful, and if we were not to put in there, well, I'm feeling that, and I like that feeling, so it's mine. But if we were just to stay with, there is a feeling, and this one's unpleasant, and this one's pleasant, then we would see reality. If we were not to go any further than that. So our investigation starts with us, with the four elements, with the five aggregates, with the parts of the body, with any of these, or just watching what's arising and ceasing. And as we see that within all that, what's really happening is just happening. And we haven't even got a handle on it. It keeps on happening. Then we may get a feeling for this insubstantiality of all that exists. Because if we find it in ourselves, then of course we will infer from it that it's everywhere else. The three characteristics all work together. They all fit together. Each one explains the other. And it doesn't matter which one of the three we investigate, whether we investigate impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or insubstantiality, because all of them lead to that one. Because only that one, the last one, makes it possible to come to non-clinging, and non-clinging is synonymous with liberation. If we see that there's nothing to cling to, then we don't cling. As long as we think there is something to cling to, whatever it may be, even though it may be painful, we'll still cling to it. Because we think it is something like a, um, a raft or a life belt or something of that nature, which makes it possible for us to be here. But on the contrary, the opposite is true. The less we cling, the easier it is to be here because we can move without obstruction and we can have freedom within that existence. If we have a great deal of confidence in the Buddha's teaching, we may wish to investigate dukkha. Because the Buddha said so. He said, first noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha. But if we don't have that much confidence in the Buddha's teaching, we may not be inclined to investigate dukkha because we figure we've got enough already. We don't want to know any more about it. It would, however, be very helpful to investigate it. Because what we usually do with dukkha is quite counterproductive. The first thing that we usually do 
is what I've mentioned many times already, is we blame something or someone for it. It must be somebody's fault. And since I'm not that stupid to make my own dukkha, so it must be somebody else's fault. It's obvious and logical. But since we have no jurisdiction over anybody else, it doesn't help us. It just makes us more resentful and more angry and more disliking and churned up if it's somebody else's fault. So if we have got over that one, it's not that difficult to get over that one if we use a little bit of discrimination and can see that it's only due to our own reaction. We might use something else. We might become sorry for ourselves. We might see that we are really having the short end of the stick. And since we don't know anybody else's sticks, we think they all have got long sticks. So we feel really sorry for ourselves. The uh, result of that can be depression. And once we've let it go that far, be very difficult to get out because that's already a very deep state of, um, of dukkha. So feeling sorry for oneself is totally unproductive. The only thing that has some value is having some compassion with oneself. Now, the far enemy of compassion is, of course, cruelty. But the near enemy is pity. Not pity, but pity. The English, pity. And if we're feeling sorry for ourselves, we are this exhibiting pity. But if we have compassion for ourselves, it means that we have an understanding, empathy. We feel with. And as we feel with, an understanding, an inner realization of the underlying causes for dukkha do become clearer. The underlying causes for dukkha are, of course, impermanence. Everything constantly changes. And not only that, it constantly moves. And because everything constantly moves, even our thoughts are dukkha. And next time you try to become concentrated and can't, look at the dukkha of thoughts. But even the nicest thought is dukkha because it has the quality of abrasion because of movement. Everything moves and therefore it is abrasive. Subtly so. Now having seen that with compassion in ourselves, it brings a better relationship to ourselves with it. If we have uh, the usual kind of reaction to dukkha, first one blaming, then maybe sorry for ourselves, third one might be trying to get away from it. Changing. Changing one's job, changing one's home, changing one's partner, changing one's diet, changing one's teacher, whatever. There are so many possibilities. So with that, we have an overlay over dukkha. And this is what the Buddha said. 
change hides dukkha. And with our physical dukkha, we try to change the position. So we don't have to have that dukkha any longer. Now, it doesn't mean that we should torture ourselves. On the contrary, the Buddha was very much against that. The middle path means only one thing, the middle between asceticism and luxury. But what it does hide is the inherent nature of dukkha in the body. It doesn't have anything else to show for itself. The Buddha said, not that the body has sometimes cancer. He said the body is a cancer. And this was his relevant statement to the built-in dukkha in the body. It can't really be comfortable for any length of time without change. Now, if you watch yourself sometime, if you come home and you sit in a very comfortable armchair, doing nothing more strenuous than watching the TV, you could count maybe for five minutes, no, let's say ten minutes, would be more, uh, more impact, how many times you move the body. The arm, the hand, the back, this way, that way. Why? Not necessarily to have exercise. I mean, it doesn't bring any exercise. It's because, meanwhile, the body has already become uncomfortable. Slightly so, but movement is needed. And this particular thing of movement, the changing over from one thing to another, hides the inherent nature of dukkha in all of existence. What we think of as dukkha are tragedies. Now, of course they're dukkha. Obviously, tragedies are dukkha. But that's not what the Buddha meant with dukkha. They are part of it. But what the Buddha explained as dukkha is the fact that because of constant impermanence and therefore constant abrasion and irritation and because of the fact that nothing remains the way it is, be it ever as desirable and pleasant, and because we're trying to get away from it and therefore move, either physically, mentally, or emotionally, and that they not see it, because of that, the dukkha, which is our reason for practice, is very often obscured. We think that it's just a particular situation which has created dukkha, or we think it's just a particular person or a particular lack of skill in ourselves to deal with something that has created the dukkha. None of that is true. Dukkha is, period. There's nothing else to be said about it. And any of those things that we try to do, such as distracting ourselves from it, are nothing but dead-end streets. Distraction is very, very popular. And that's why TV and movies and things like that have had so much success. 
because they are distracting us from our dukkha, particularly if they show the dukkha of others. feels better than they have worse dukkha than oneself. But none of this is really dukkha. The reality of dukkha is that it pervades everything. And once having seen that, without trying to get away from it, and without trying to distract ourselves or being sorry for ourselves or moving or trying to blame anyone, without any of that, but just standing in front of it and seeing it fully, and accepting it and saying, aha, that's existence. It can never be totally satisfying because it never remains in one place. Everything is always moving about. And because of that, there's always that subtle feeling of dissatisfaction. It can be very subtle. Once having seen that clearly and accepted it, we don't suffer from it. It's there. It exists. We don't have to suffer from it. If we accept anything, we don't try to push against it. So we don't hurt ourselves. If there's a door that's hard to open and we try to push and push and push, eventually it hurts our hand. If we push and it doesn't open, so we remain where we are, no pain. And this is why the Buddha's words were that the cause for dukkha is craving. We don't want the dukkha. We crave to be rid of it. And therefore, we'll never see the end of it until the moment when we realize that accepting it as one of the three characteristics of existence makes it no burden at all. It just exists. And if it just exists, we don't have to crave to get rid of it. Of course, dukkha also arises when we crave to get something and crave to keep something, which is obviously not possible since everything changes. If we go with the flow, which is such a very uh, acceptable phrase, if we were to really do it, we wouldn't have any dukkha. Because... Dukkha flows everywhere. <laughs> and if we go with it, that'd be just fine. But we only know the words. We don't know how to do it. So we need to practice. And we need to see if we have that kind of confidence in the Buddha's words, we have to see it for ourselves that no matter what we do on the material, worldly level, we can't get away from it. It's always there. It's always with us. It's either physical or it's mental or it's emotional. It's around us. And it's that subtle feeling of dissatisfaction which comes about because there ought to be something that really stinks. Obviously, this is the reason why people come to meditation courses. So, we should be extremely grateful to Dukkha. It's our very best teacher. There's nobody to compare as a teacher with Dukkha. I usually say that if you come and 
say to your teacher, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going home. My back hurts. My legs hurt. Uh, I can't get concentrated. I mean, I'm just having dukkha, you know. I'm, I'm going home. The teacher will most likely say, oh, sorry to see you leave, but uh, hope you'll be happy. Now you say that to Dukkha. You say, you know, I've had enough of all this. You know, my legs and my back and my mind and everything is a mess. You know, I'm going home. Dukkha says, well, that's all right, but I'm coming along. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't find a better teacher. And since we can't find a better one, it's the one to be really grateful to. It doesn't mean we have to become devoted to it but we can be grateful to it. It's, if you examine your own life, I'm sure you will find within the one minute or two that dukkha is what made you come here. Whether it's strong dukkha, that is tragedy, or just that little inner feeling of, I ought to find something which has an absolute feeling of reality about it, whatever it may have been, or... I'm not happy at home, or whatever it is. That's what makes one practice. And in the practice itself, of course, the first step on transcendental depend arising, which means transcending our conditionality, the first step on that sequence is understanding dukkha properly. Once we've understood it, we can start practicing properly. Now, if we don't, we may, you know, have a better situation at home or the body is all right again or uh, the weather is better or whatever, so we don't have to do this anymore, this practice. But if we understand dukkha properly, that won't happen. We'll keep on practicing. And also we won't blame anyone. Not ourselves either. There is nobody to blame. Who is there to blame for existence? Well, some people blame God for it. But that is rather unproductive, isn't it? (laughs) That doesn't bring a thing. So we might as well forget about that. And who else could we possibly find to blame? There just isn't anybody to blame. What really happens is that we have lots of triggers. And these triggers are coming at us through our senses, through what we see, what we hear, taste, touch, smell, and think. And because of these triggers, we react, obviously. The trigger is a sense contact, brings the sense contact, then comes feeling, then comes perception, and then comes the mental reaction. And since we haven't really analyzed that enough, dissected it enough, haven't become used to that um, part-by-part, step-by-step experience that is ours, we think immediately that our negative reaction, which is a mental formation, is due to 
that trigger, a person saying something or doing something or ourselves seeing something, hearing something, whatever it may be, we have forgotten that there are all these steps in between which happened and that all we're doing is actually reacting to an unpleasant feeling which has arisen and therefore are getting angry. But we're not looking at those steps in between. We're knowing that there was a trigger which we contacted and we know that there is a reaction which is anger. And because we know only those two and don't pay attention to the others, we have this idea that if we could get rid of those triggers, we'd be fine. So we spend a lifetime trying to get rid of the triggers. Impossible. There's always a new one. Actually, what is really to be considered is the fact that whatever sits in here, that will jump out. If it isn't in there, it can't jump out. I, in, I like to think of the uh, jack-in-the-box that children play with. A little uh, cardboard box with a little doll inside sitting on a spring has a lid on top. So the child plays with that, touches the lid, and the doll jumps out. So then somebody comes along and pulls that doll out of the box. And the child comes along and wants the doll to jump out, and it doesn't, so it gets a hammer and hits the lid. (laughs) Nothing happens, no doll. No anger. Nothing happens. No trigger can do it. Impossible. As long as it's sitting in there, it's going to jump out at the appropriate occasion. And also, of course, at the inappropriate occasion. (laughs) We need to really slow down in our reaction and examine very quickly when it takes a millisecond, to examine what's happening. If we can examine the the four mind aggregates as they happen and see them, we will see where our reactions come from and how we think of them as our dukkha induced from outside. None of this is true. Direct seeing will prevent this mistake. So if we use Dukkha as a teacher, which we should, we will have innumerable opportunities for seeing things as they really are. By the same token, impermanence can be examined in the same way. Again, this is usually done by someone who has good concentration. A person with good concentration likes to examine impermanence because not only is impermanence, of course, rampant, but it's also part of concentration. That, too, is not permanent. So we can choose which one of the three we do and we don't have to examine one 
exclusively, we can at one time probably be more attracted to examining one of the three characteristics and another time another one. So if we want to examine impermanence, that too is obscured, first of all, through our not wanting to know about it. We do know it anyway. We have this underlying intelligence and wisdom which is quite sure that nothing is permanent. But we don't really want to admit it. And because we don't want to admit it, it always hits us time and time again as if it were a tragedy. Somebody dies and it's a tragedy. Somebody we love. It's not a tragedy. It's nothing but the law of impermanence. But we didn't want to know about it, so it hits us like that. Or somebody who used to love us can't stand us anymore. It's a tragedy. It's not. It's just a normal way of a change of the feelings and emotions of human beings. This kind of reaction to these changes are very common, and that's why the Buddha recommended the five daily recollections. Remembering once, decay, disease, and death, and all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. If we can remember this every day and we collect it every day, it may become part and parcel of our inner realization. And then when changes do happen, when we are no longer healthy but are sick, no longer young but are old, no longer rich but are poor, and uh, whatever it is that has changed, it's not a tragedy. It's a change. It's impermanent. And when that comes about, equanimity arises. And equanimity makes it possible to have calm and collectedness under all situations so that we don't react impulsively. It slows us down. Equanimity, even-mindedness, makes it much easier <coughs> to deal with a human life which, under the best of circumstances, is still difficult. So if we examine impermanence within us, we can do that very well in all the different meditative experiences which I've already mentioned. And the more we see the impermanence, for instance, of the breath or of the feeling, the easier it is then to infer from that that there's nothing that is different from impermanence either within or without. Now, we can use nature around us for that investigation. We can see in one tree the live and dead leaves. We can see the change from the dry grass to the uh, lush grass. We can see in nature the change and the impermanence from the seasons. But... If we don't refer that to ourselves, it doesn't really help us. One of the reasons why we put flowers on a shrine is not to make it beautiful. That's an added attraction. The reason for putting flowers on the shrine is to 
symbolize impermanence. They're so pretty today, and they'll all be in rack and ruin tomorrow. And that's the same with us. We're so pretty today, but not for long. And where do these flowers go? In the garbage heap. No difference to where we go. That's the reason for putting flowers on the shrine. The Buddha was a pragmatist, a realist. He was neither an optimist nor a pessimist. But he has or had also the uh, quality of a reformer. Because in the India that he was born into and where he lived, the Brahmanical religion, which as it was then called, which is now called Hinduism, had a quality of the meditative experience which went into the absorptions, but the insight was not cultivated at all. And that was his innovative uh, addition to that um, spiritual path, which is then and now very strong in India and has little change from his time. The same as it was then, another reformer probably going to come one of these days. So what we see in our experience of the investigation is that we can use either one of the three characteristics to come to an understanding of all three. Now, a person who has an analytical bent of mind, someone who likes to analyze, to have... um, a deeper understanding of matters whose mind works quickly and connects with a person who would like to investigate anatta. And I actually have come away from using the word non-self word. It is a, the traditional Theravadan translation, and it is literal, but it isn't really conclusive. The word anatta is not conclusive enough, it means, it doesn't mean just non-self, it means non-substantiality. However, for us, for our own practice, it has to come to the point where we realize that self is an illusion. And our clinging to that illusion is the cause for dukkha. And the clinging to the illusion is also our way of trying to deny reality. Now, we don't only deny it like that. We deny it in many other ways also. But this is a basic denial. So we are so interested usually in uh, becoming aware of our emotions. We don't want to deny them. So let's not deny reality at all. Let's investigate it. Whether we like it or not has nothing to do with it. Do we like our anger? We still want to know that we've got it. So it's not like or dislike. It's an investigative procedure which needs to be done out of the simple reason that we want to know the truth. That's all. That's good enough. Now, a person who has that kind of mind, 
that is analytical and likes to explore and also likes to be innovative, has the courage to look objectively, not subjectively, will be very much attracted to that investigation. Again, we can use the five aggregates to see which one proclaims me in it. We can use the parts of the body. We can use ourselves, particularly when we react the way we didn't want to. Who did it? We didn't want to react like that. So who was it? Is there some little person sitting inside doing the things we don't really want to do? It's a very um, helpful moment to recognize that reactions arise and then cease again. And if they were really ours, why aren't we doing something about it? One of the things which will also help at this time to recognize impermanence more in depth and therefore get also more of a grip on the uh, reality of the non-substantiality is the fact that we may be able, through concentration, to see more of the dissolution aspect. Now, we know that the breath is arising and ceasing, but there comes a moment of good concentration when everything that we are paying attention to is ceasing, disappearing. If we have good concentration, we are not alarmed by that. If we have great clinging and not, it is a very important investigation and I'm mentioning it with emphasis so that if that, if that what is happening, to put one's mind on it and not to deny it. It's true. Everything is falling apart constantly. It arises again and that continuity is the cause for our denial of impermanence. But when the concentration is quite strong, the dissolution, the ceasing, becomes much stronger apparent, and then the denial is no longer possible. And when that's not possible, we may not like it very much. But did we really come to this uh, existence in order to like it? Or what did we come here for? To life and this time between birth and death. Did we have any guarantees handed to us at our birth that we're going to like it? It's um, a myth. And uh, it's something that we're constantly trying to find ourselves in situations which we like it doesn't really bring any results. It's much better if we were to find ourselves in situations which we recognize for what they really are. Each one of these three characteristics has a doorway, so to say, by through which we can go to find liberation. Now, the way these are worded is this. Dukkha has a doorway of wishlessness. 
In other words, when we come to a point where we don't wish anything, we do not wish to get rid of dukkha. We've accepted it. It just is. We recognize the fact that dukkha has disappeared. When there's no wish, there's no dukkha. Now that is the apex of the practice. And we need to have the guidelines so we know that our wishes are producing our dukkha. What we wish for is constantly again and again to keep that what we like. It's unfortunately a lost cause. (coughs) And since we are, all of humanity, dealing with lost causes all the time, Most people don't look very happy, rightly so, because they can't get what they want. So dukkha disappears when there's wishlessness. Impermanence has the doorway to liberation of signlessness. Now, signlessness means that we cannot find anything that produces a sign of permanence. We cannot find anything that produces a sign of remaining. Everything has the significance that we give it, but not a significance in reality. So we have, if we see that quite clearly, we have liberation through impermanence. And anatta, non-self, has the liberation or the doorway through which we can go, which means the recognition of corelessness, that there is nothing which has actual solidity. Now, all of this needs investigation, Whichever one of the three we like, whichever one of the three we like to investigate, whether we do it in meditation or contemplation, whether we do it at times when we have stress or when everything goes well, no matter when and how we do it, the more we do it, the easier it is to understand. In meditation, the best way to come to this understanding is after the calm. So if you have been fortunate enough to gain some calm in meditation, no matter how much or how little, at the end of the meditation is the time to investigate because the calm mind is a strong mind and the strong mind can see reality. So from a practical standpoint, this is the time then to do the investigation into one of those three, whichever one you like, whichever way you like to do it. It's got to be done within, but can then be transferred to outside of oneself. If the mind is very agitated and can't become calm, then that investigation can be done instead of trying to become calm. It is not as productive, but 
it is much better than discursive thinking. Now, this is an also important point which I'd like to make at this time. Investigation and contemplation is not discursive thinking. Discursive thinking goes from one subject to the next like a sound that arises and the mind says, bird. And then the mind says, must be that black and white one I saw yesterday. I wonder if they've got a lot of them here. It's amazing that these birds still come with that freeway so near. I wish they wouldn't build so many freeways. But then, of course, California, they've got so many cars. I have to get my car checked. I know it's got an oil leak. <laughs> sound. Some sound. So now we're at the mechanics already. That's discursive thinking. Contemplation or investigation is different. It takes one subject and tries to see whether it applies to oneself. That's all. And if we see that it applies to oneself, how does it apply to me? What is, what is it within me that proclaims that particular characteristic? Or what is it in me that shows me that my reaction should be of choice and not of compulsion. Contemplation and insight meditation are very much akin to each other. But in insight meditation, we can also do another thing we can use just one particular aspect, not all aspects of ourselves, namely the impermanence of the breath as our focus of attention. But then the mind probably will quite naturally and, and without any prompting go to the impermanence of everything else. So the more we focus on one aspect, the more chances a mind has to see clearly. So discursive thinking is non-productive. Contemplation and investigation can be extremely productive. That's enough for tonight. Um, maybe you'd like to ask some questions. Yes. <coughs> Mm-hmm. If you can manage that, yes. If you can figure out how you look when you decay. I mean, some people have that ability. Some people have very visual minds and can do that quite easily. And some people find it difficult. But if, um, if you have seen a person, for instance who was quite all right and then became sick and looked worse and worse and worse and then finally died, then you can transfer that particular experience to yourself. And then you need not so much imagination or visual. Uh, well, some people have a lot of that and can do it. Then it becomes a personal experience. And if you don't like doing it, it's doubly important to do it. <laughs> if you can manage it, yes. 
Yes. Because it will show you the clinging, it will show you the fear, it, it will show you also the um, re, um, results of that clinging and fear. It will show many things. And But if you can manage then to go through that fear and that clinging, come out the other side, you'll feel relieved. It's, uh, you don't love them less, you love them more. Because the fear pollutes the love. So you can try to do that, yes. Well, the beauties of the natural world, uh, you don't mean in Buddhist literature. No, no. no in other literature, no, yes. Uh, do they write about that? Yeah, I haven't read much lately. Um, yes, well, the beauties of the natural world, we call it Mara, M-A-R-A, <laughs> the tempter. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's there, there's no doubt about it, and we can enjoy it. But we need to recognize the fact that it is one of the reasons that we cling, that we cling to existence and that we try to console ourselves. Well, look at these beautiful roses. Things can't be all that bad. And we console ourselves with those ideas and thoughts and then go out into nature and enjoy that and forget about the fact that Dukkha is inherent in nature. Now, if you live in the forest, as I have done for a long time, you will become acquainted with the Dukkha in nature. Everybody eats everybody, and everybody is afraid of everybody in the forest. The smaller, the more afraid. All you have to do is watch birds. They're very pretty, but they're so afraid. They are constantly in fear. They live only in fear. They are constantly turning around their heads to see if somebody is coming around to attack them. And if you look, live in the forest, you will see decay, disease, and death on, at first hand. And some of it is, um, can be quite dramatic if there's a big storm or a, a flood. So living within nature also takes away that um, those rose-colored glasses that it's so beautiful. It is. Nature is. That's all one can say about it. So the, um, the temptations are always there to see only the one side of it. To change the judgment, the judging. Yeah, I know that I do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I see people and I make a judgment right away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the best way to deal with that, and I'm sure you're not the only one that has that problem, <laughs> <laughs> is to remember your own dukkha and infer from that that everybody's got it. 
has it, has dukkha. That is a specific step. Know your own dukkha and thereby know that everybody has it. If you can't take that step, you haven't seen dukkha yet. And when you see that everybody's got it, you don't care anymore what kind of a hat they have or what kind of a um, uh, meditation they do. You just have compassion. Compassion for everybody's dukkha. Each person has it. Nobody is exempt. And some people have specific dukkhas. They've got a list of them. And others just have it. And then there are some who would like to claim they haven't got it. Well, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got it. It's part of existence. And when you arouse compassion for yourself, you've got compassion for others on hand. And that's the way to be non-judgmental. It's also not, of course, 100% perfect until oneself becomes 100% perfect, but it's certainly better than judgment. So it's seeing one's own dukkha. And in that yes. Yeah. Yeah. And with the contemplation, you can go a little bit further afield, but still not discursive. Right. Okay. Anything else? Yes. <coughs> But meanwhile, you still feel unhappy about it? Yeah, I do. I drive along with the pillar. Compassion, compassion. Compassion for the people who built those things. And people who have to work in them and those people who have to go and buy in them. <laughs> compassion. Just compassion for everybody. Hmm? To the, for the forest. Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, trees have feeling, quite so. Um, the, the compassionate feeling for the ills in our society and in nature and in everything is the only way to deal with the dukkha that we see. And uh, obviously it's dukkha that we see around us and we don't like it. So we can either become sick about it or angry at it or something like that. But compassion is more useful. And for, you, for yourself, that you are a human being that has all the difficulties of any human being. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I personally don't find it useful to say those things. I find it more useful to actually see that the dukkha, which we all try to escape from, is inescapable. And as I see that that is inescapable and exists, accept it, and have compassion for myself as a human being that exists within this dukkha and thereby have compassion for others, whose dukkha may be even much stronger because they haven't accepted it yet. I don't find it so good to repeat just the word. They are okay as a starter. But just to repeat them, I find that, uh, well, from the experience I have, of course, in the East, that this becomes a parrot-like repetition. Yeah, there's not a real feeling behind it because the repetition becomes stronger than anything else. Uh, It may not be that. It may not be so, but I'm afraid that it could be so. Yes. Near enemy. It's called a near enemy because it appears to be so similar, but it doesn't have the same quality of being with of relating it to oneself. Pity has a quality of being somewhat distant from the other person. Uh, in fact, it often has a quality. I'm glad it's not me. So it doesn't have that being with the other person as like compassion has. So empathy, yes, feeling with, yes. Okay. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Feel your heart as if it were a sun, warming lighting up, dispelling all heaviness and darkness, filling you with warmth and light enjoy feel this sun in your heart enlarging and expanding till it fills you from head to toe
Now let the sun in your heart shine on the person nearest you, filling him or her with the warmth and the light and the joy comes from the sun in your heart. as a gift from your heart to that person. Let the sun in your heart shine on everyone here, filling everyone with warmth and light and joy. Let the sun in your heart reach out with love to everyone here. Let the sun from your heart reach out to all the people who are near and dear to you. Feel the warmth and the light emanating from your heart, filling your near and dear ones with love and joy. Let the sun in your heart shine on all your friends. Give them the warmth and the light and the love from your heart.
think of all the people you know, whether you know them well or have just seen them or see them sometimes. Just let them all arise before your mind's eye and let the sun from your heart shine on all of them, filling them with the warmth and the joy and the love that emanates from your heart. Think of anyone with whom you may have difficulties and realize that the sun shines on everyone without discrimination. Let the sun from your heart shine on that person too with warmth and love and light and joy. Open up your heart as wide as you can. Let the sun be as big as possible. And feel its rays of warmth and light and joy going outward, near and far, to beings everywhere, (coughs) as far as the strength of the sun in your heart will reach. Put your attention back on yourself 
and feel the sun in your heart emanating warmth and light and love and joy for yourself, filling yourself with that from head to toe and surrounding yourself with those emanations from the sun in your heart that you become that sun. May beings everywhere be well and happy.